This is the Modern CTO Podcast. The way this worked is I actually went to college in in the States. I, I'm currently based at Bangalore in India. So I, I actually, and I've been living here for many years. I went to, the, went to college in the States um, and studied uh, economics and math, stayed as away from as far away from computers as, and, and 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 computer engineering as I possibly could. That's not that far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you know, I actually uh, I had gone to high school with with a very good friend of mine who now currently is Odessa CEO. And what happened was he was in the U.S. at the same time as well, and uh, he actually threw an internship and worked with a company that ended up that, as it turned out, that's something very similar to what we do, at least in our early years. So he, uh, when he decided to um, kind of start Odessa, he gave me a call and I've obviously known him since childhood. So I think he told me, hey, listen, I'm trying this thing in this pretty niche industry. It's an asset finance industry. Would you like to join me? And um, I think I thought about it for one second and uh, we were still in college at the time. And I think my only response was, uh, cool, whose dorm room should we work out of? You know. <laughs> So that's that's actually how uh, I, I got into technology. So obviously I had some idea of, of, of just engineering and computers and how all of that comes together. But uh, that was really that's really how we got started. So it was just the two of us for for quite a few years, and that was how we learned learned the craft. That's yeah, awesome. Made our way through. So did you grow up in the Bangalore area and then go to school and then actually, come back? Actually, no. I grew up in Mumbai, which is which is, I don't know if you know how, it, it's just an hour, hour and a half flight. So it's, it, it's, it's further up north than India, but, but Madhu, who is our CEO and I have actually met in high school, which was in another part of, of the country. That's really cool. That's awesome. Um, it's, it's really cool how you, you never know, like Absolutely. what relationships you make at any point in your life. Well, yeah, no, 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 doubt, no doubt about it. So um, can you tell me a little bit about what, so Odessa has pretty much been your only job in your career, right? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. awesome, man. I'm really unqualified to do anything else, really. <laughs> <laughs> made, 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 made us certifiably unemployable, I think. But uh, yeah, so uh, it, it, has, uh, it has been the only job. So we, the way we started was obviously the sort of classic dorm room, kind of just, just, just working through whatever we, we try to do, scraping things together. Um, and trying as hell to get someone to 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 buy our software. So we started with, and I'm going to definitely date myself here, but we started with essentially what you today would say is a glorified Excel sheet that uh, helped salespeople who were selling equipment finance uh, out in the field uh, to calculate your sort of buy versus lease calculation. But the kind of significant innovation we had there was that it also printed your documents. So, you know, the salesperson could go and then he or she could connect to a printer and print the documents. So it was almost like an early prescient sort of mobile type application. And the whole idea was that because you could print it, that was really the innovation that we had. Otherwise, salespeople had to go back to the head office and, you know, do it and so on. So that was the difference, really. And I think that just got us going. We sold a few copies of that and that's how we got momentum. And then we made the shift to start building what were the very early stages of what is our current current platform. So that was kind of how the journey evolved. That's crazy. That's filling such like a simple need that was clearly unmet. And uh, yeah, and, and that was really you're right. You know, you make a good point, Adam. That was really the learning. The learning was 
because we didn't actually, the first iteration of that software didn't really have that print document capability, which was the magic capability. <laughs> people were paying, I mean, just to put it into perspective, people were paying $3,000, $5,000 a pop for this thing. So it wasn't like it was, but it absolutely paid the bills and put food on the table and so on. So I think you're right, though. The insight of, hey, if we get this in the hands of, of the customer and then you come back and you learn of one more thing that they want, you can just keep iterating that way. Well, I, I, I think the biggest learnings through that, to be honest. So when it started, it was a software that helped salespeople that are selling equipment finance, right? So, yes, yeah, selling. Yes, exactly. So when, if you imagine, for example, someone's going to a farm, a salesperson's going to a farm and saying, you know, don't buy this combine or tractor. Why don't you lease it from us instead? And Got here's it. why the economics of that will work better. So it was something you could probably do on an HP 12 calculator, but the idea here was that you could also print the documents. <laughs> and that was magic. That was the magic insight that we had, at least that got us started. So what's the company doing today? So we're still in equipment finance and asset finance, but now obviously the scope and the remit of what we do is much broader. So what we do now is we manage the end-to-end lifecycle for an equipment finance or an asset finance contract. So if you think about what happens in terms of how a lot of capital equipment gets procured, maybe if you're a little bit removed from the industry, your, your take is when a, cap, when a piece of equipment gets bought, it actually gets bought. But so much of it, I think seven out of 10 pieces of capital equipment in the US, for example, get financed. And so it's a massive industry. So it's about a $3 billion industry in annual, volu- annual volume. So industry insiders will tell you, you know, it's the billion dollar secret. It's a trillion dollar secret in the US that nobody knows about, right? So, so the way, the way that works is you go through the entire sort of life cycle of putting in a credit application, being adjudicated for credit, funding, disbursement of that loan or that lease or the monies, the delivery of the equipment, the managing of the billing, the accounting, and so on. So it's a very comprehensive process. So what we do is we manage that end-to-end life cycle. So we're really, if you're an equipment finance or an asset finance organization, we are the heartbeat on which your entire organization runs. And then, of course, we that's the core of what we do. And then we have an, a platform that sits around that that allows you to do much more, manage your data, have an omnichannel presence with your customer, with our customers' customers. So we help digitize that relationship and, and so on and so forth. So that's really what we do. So it's, it's grown quite a bit from that. From that, from that calculator, but, uh, but yeah. it's in the same general area. Okay, cool. So I'm curious, what's the benefit of having expertise specifically in equipment finance? Like, why can't a bank run run this kind of operation as as they would for like other types of finance? No, a bank does. The bank would be our end customer. So oh, god, I got it. The bank is the bank runs our software. And on the back of that software runs its operations using our technology. So, okay. so you're, you're spot on in terms of how that works. A bank does run it, but they use our technology to run it. Cool. All right. All right. This is this is clicking for me a little bit. Oh, I'm so one thing I always like to ask uh, founders or people that are in on the ground floor: Where did the name yeah. come from for the company? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we always get. I'm surprised you took that long to ask the question. Uh, so, so both. Uh, uh, so I think oh, we were both readers. Madhu, who's our CEO in particular, uh, 
loved uh, the Odyssey, which is, you know, the Homer story about the Odyssey. So we actually started the company by calling it Odyssey International, which sounded more like a cruise ship. You know, <laughs> go from Florida to Jamaica on the Odyssey International. So then we changed it almost overnight and then the name evolved to Odessa, which is the meaning, which is the manifestation of a journey. And, you know, that's, that was a very important part for us, uh, part of it for us. And in fact, still kind of in our values, which is, you know, enjoy the journey, you know, and, and that was a, actually the whole reason we, we, we did it in the end. It wasn't necessarily particularly that we wanted to revolutionize asset finance only. We also wanted to just be in it for, for the ride. And, then, and it's been 23 years and we're still on that roller coaster. Nice. So um, I guess what were what were some of the challenges you came up against early on? Because, I mean... Founding a company is hard. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was. It was. It was hard. Um, I think the big thing was just so the market that we work in, in to some extent, is still the case is dominated by by legacy technology. There's few players. There's significant barriers to entry to enter this because these are very important middle office, front office, and back office systems that run the heart of very complex operations at these large financial institutions. So it's hard to actually have credibility and get in this. So the hardest thing was to try and win the trust of a prospective customer for them to take a chance on a relatively new player. So I think again that came from, you know, obviously that you just you just keep trying and you keep trying to attack one piece of insight that you feel that will make the difference. So you win your equivalent finance calculator and you print the documents and you just kind of build from there and you, and you keep going. And then there's just somebody who then eventually decides that they want to take a chance on you. But I think that process is, is difficult, of course. And we were, you know, we were, we were a bit old school. We didn't go out and get money and get funding and so on and so forth. And also we were both immigrants living in the U.S. So that made it a little bit harder to do anyways in those days at least. So all of that meant that we had to do everything sort of organically which was great in one sense because it taught us to eat only what we killed and not get ahead of ourselves and so on. But it also made things, uh, it also meant that things took a little longer to get off the ground than they would. Than they would. And certainly the ecosystem to help someone who's starting a new company now is so much better and so much more uh, active than it was in those days for us at least. But, but that was the, I, I think that was the hardest part. Of course, along the way, you have, you have a lot of bumps, you have you know, things that you remember that stay with you, prospects that you should have won that you didn't, deals that you lost, you know, software that you put out there that didn't quite work. All of that, all of that comes with the journey. But I think the hard part was just gaining that initial credibility with customers. So I'm sure that there's a lot more advanced tech behind it today than the option to print. What What's some yeah. of the tech behind your, uh, your product today? Yeah, so we are... Um, actually, we, we are a Microsoft shop, um, so our technology stack is primarily a Microsoft technology stack, a lot of emphasis on, on so we use a lot of .NET, C Sharp, and then, of course, uh, Azure on the cloud side. So that's, that's the general technology stack that powers, uh, powers our, our, our software. Cool. So I, I saw this phrase um, on your website that yeah. you've externalized your solutions into a low-code platform. Um, yep. Can you expand on that? What, is that? what does that mean in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So just maybe a little bit of context uh, there, right? So for us, you know, obviously we went through, we've gone through many iterations and, and sort of versions of our, of, our, of, our, of our technology. And when we were working on, 
what is now our current generation platform, the one insight that we had from years of doing this before is that we have to focus on developing the right framework to do the, to, on which we can do the development of the domain work that is associated with the equipment finance and asset finance industry. So what I mean by that is we said, okay, we got to build a factory and then we got to build the car in that factory. But the focus was on developing the engineering framework that supported that. And so we went through that process and we built, we built the car. And then through that process, we realized, hang on, there's actually a product hanging, hiding behind this entire car, which is the factory itself. So what we did is we also productized the car and, and, and then gave our customers the same flexibility that our engineering teams have, have to extend and, and modify and alter the platform. So that became a very important part of our R&D philosophy, really, which is, you know, eat your own dog food or or drink your own champagne or whatever whatever you want to call it. But the idea is that we build a lot of the tools and the frameworks and the ecosystem technology that supports the very thing that our customers use. We consume it ourselves. So we're the first customer of our own tool set. And then if we can externalize it and give it to our customers, then you have already a validated product that our customers can use and leverage. And then it gives us a structured mechanism by which we can actually engage with our customers because the technology framework or the paradigm is exactly the same. So from a from a technology perspective and even from a business outcome perspective, hopefully we're then talking the same exact language. So, so that's what. It, so sorry. Go ahead. So what are you guys using your own product for internally? So we use our own product for many things internally, but primarily for building our core system. So we have a core system. And then we have a development framework that sits underneath it. And all we've done is we've externalized a development framework so that our customers can take our core system and, as I said, just modify it. And we use our core system and continues, uh, we use our, sorry, our development framework and continue to expand it as well so that our customers can use it as a local development platform. Because what we find in these very complex implementations that we do is we have a core customer, we have a customer that has core needs across the asset finance lifecycle but also other software that sits around it that they want to rationalize, homogenize. So they use our local framework to do that as well, so that we then become sort of the operating system in which the entire organization runs, as opposed to just this, this product that they black box and put in a corner and use for things like accounting and billing and credit. That's, okay. the, that's, that's that platform sort of thinking. So maybe if you had that conversation with me five years ago, the same conversation with me five years ago, we would have said, where we build a product, but today it's very different. We build a platform. Got it. So you've you've kind of created like an open source ecosystem with your clients. That is correct. It's that that would be the equivalent. Okay, cool. So it's like, but it's not not technically open source. It's like just the the people that have it can can modify and work on their copy, and then you can implement cool changes that they make if you want to on the product side is that that's right we give them yeah we give the, one of the challenges one of the things that's that we have to solve <clears throat> as an organization is our customers want a core standard system that does a lot of things that are very important from a process standpoint from a regulatory standpoint from an operational standpoint that is common across asset finance in general but then they also want last mile flexibility to do things that are unique to them. So 
that that's, that is really the problem. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. That's the business outcome that we're trying to drive to, which is how do you have a standard platform that does maybe 85, 90% of what you do is common, but then how do we give you that last mile flexibility? So that development framework that we've externalized allows our customers to self-serve and get that last mile fle- flexibility if they need to. That's the, that's the beauty of kind of how that, that comes together. And so, and you also said that the development framework is low code. And I know low code is a bit of a spectrum in terms of like how low, <laughs> I guess it is. So like, does the end user have to be like a developer to use it or what kind of experience level is required? Yeah, I think in this context, you do have to be a developer because you're ultimately working to extend or modify a reasonably complicated accounting operations mm-hmm. system. But in terms of just design and prototype, you could certainly be uh, someone with, 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 without development experience. But if you're really going to start making changes, then you do have to have some development experience. So it is not a, so we have to kind of balance making sure that, for, for example, someone can prototype from that effectively and yet develop code in that. So you guys have been around for, you said, 23 years now, right? That is correct. So um, being around for now a while, how have you avoided falling into the trap of building some monolithic tech that becomes more of an obstacle than something that enables you? How have you like <laughs> stayed nimble? Yeah. Uh, It's a great question. It's a challenge, right? That's one of the hardest parts of, for example, my job is when do you decide? It's the whole innovator's dilemma, right? When do you decide that incrementalism is going to come in the way of moving you forward, for example, right? So the way we tend to work is we tend to look at, you know, we have sort of two time horizons that we tend to look at the world in. One is a six to 12 month time horizon, and then the three year time horizon, right? So you know, you do use, you do look at different sections of your entire technology landscape and saying, okay, how much can I do incrementally to continue to add value to the customer? And then at what time do I realize that, you know, I'm actually really contorting, breaking the paradigm and the art, art, uh, architectural integrity of what I'm trying to achieve by going down this road. And, and so I got to just wipe the slate clean and start over. So it's a constant investment in incremental enhancements. You've got to keep your tech debt as low as possible. And then every once in a while, you've just got to say, you know, stop, I'm going to rewrite this. The question really is, how do you know, stop, I'm going to rewrite this? Because anything you build from an engineering perspective, you know that at some point you're going to have to redo it, right? It's just a question of knowing when those signals come. So it's in some sense more important. It's, it's important to not conflate, you know, engineering culture with, engineering because engineering can be iterative but your engineering culture really can't be very iterative you've got to know when you say you know i'm going to throw this away and i'm going to start again and you have to have the courage to do that and that's not always always easy and it's not like we've always made those decisions uh well but but that's something that we always we always think about yeah that's that's really really challenging to because if you wait too long to wipe the slate clean then it's like yep. it just the the process of wiping the slate clean just becomes more and more intense. That's right. And I think the irony is the longer you wait, the harder that gets to wipe the slate clean as well, right? So what happens is, you know, when do you make that switch and when do you decide that incrementalism is is just not enough, right? And I, I've got to do it. 
Because you can't always, obviously, wipe the slate clean either. It has to make business sense. It has to make commercial sense. Time to market considerations, all those things. So just uh, just the other day, we were, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, with Martin Fowler, for example. And we were just looking at one of his design paradigms around a strangler tree, which is, you know, apparently this tree in Australia that grows, but and it uses the base tree that, it, that exists to grow and then strangles the base tree out of existence. And that's a design paradigm that we were thinking about using for some parts of our technology landscape that we want to modernize, but we can't throw away. So again, that finding that balance between, you know, that how how hard you push incremental innovation versus versus full uh, disruptive change is something that is that is uh, one of the one of the more challenging parts of of my job and really our engineering uh, team. Did you have any failures around this early on? That you that really learned from many, many. You know, you you look back and you and and you sometimes there 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 are occasions where we said, for example, at one time we had a perfectly well functioning piece of functionality, which we then decided, you know, we're going to change. It's 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 on slightly dated tech, and we want to go ahead and change it. And and we did that. And frankly, we didn't get the business outcomes that we that we were that we were expecting. In that, maybe what we had done before was actually generating equivalent business outcome from even if you just look basic innovation. Uh, sorry, basic things like revenue and so on, right? And you realize that you don't get the outcomes that you want, and you then realize you know you chase technology for the sake of technology, and you 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 weren't rooted in the business strategy. So that that happens. We certainly had our fair share of those sometimes. The engineering voice becomes louder than the business voice, and you've got to kind of manage that. And then there's equally examples of, of it going the other way, which is, you know, we should have changed that faster. Uh, we should we should have thrown it away earlier, and, and that happens as well. As, as you know, I think 23 years were littered with examples <laughs> of, of of when we've done that. But it's it's always just finding that right that right rhythm and balance to it. Yep, and learning from each one, and I'm sure you're much better at it today than uh, you were when you were working in the dorm room. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no I, I think one thing you do, one thing I, at least I've learned is in some sense when you're leading, even when you're leading an R&D organization, you almost got to think about it more like a CEO than a CTO and that you've got to think about it as a business function first and almost separate the solutioning from the technology. So sometimes engineering teams tend to think a little more about what technology should we use to do this to do this what technology should we use to do that as opposed to okay how are we achieving what the customer wants right and so it's some simple but it's very important to come and kind of come back to that first principle sometimes when you're making those types of technology decisions so if you bring the more why i said think about it sometimes more like a ceo because if you think about the marketplace you think about the customer you think about being rooted in business strategy then generally the solutioning you know, then falls into place and the technology enables that solutioning as opposed to flipping the other way around, where, this, where, where you're almost uh, a, a, you're almost a solution looking for a problem. Um, and I think you can finish that, you know? Yeah, yeah. You, you want to not have tech for tech's sake. That's right, yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, I saw you have on the website, there's an Odessa Foundation and an Odessa University. Uh, first, mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the Odessa Foundation? Yeah, I think that was a, that was a pledge that, that we made about five, seven years ago, which is just around what we give back to our community in terms of 
in terms of money, in terms of time, and, and just how we participate more broadly in, in, in the world that we live in. We are quite a global organization. You know, we're about a thousand people now. Quite, we, we operate in, in, in different geographies. Uh, a large portion of our operations are in the U.S. as our headquarters. India is a large portion of our operations as well. So how can we give back, give back to the, to, to just the community that we, that we live in is, was a very important part of who we wanted to be. And frankly, when we got to the point where we had the means and the resources to do that, that was a very important thing for us to, to kind of, uh, put our money to where, put our, put our money where our mouth is in terms of what we wanted to do for, for the world at large. So that was what, that's what the Odessa Foundation is about. Uh, Odessa University is a, is a different thing. Odessa University is, Really, our boot camp, uh, our learning institution for engineers, analysts that, that that join our organization. So, how do we take someone who joins the organization and get him or her up to speed quickly around what we do, learn our frameworks, learn our tools, understand our domain, uh, and then obviously keep that as far as possible a continuous process. So, it's really uh, it's it's. In class training, in on person, uh, one on one training, it's classroom training, it's uh, resources and aggregation of all our knowledge, all our retros, everything we've learned, all the mistakes we've made, all the good things we've done uh, that that you have access to if you you work at Adassa, so that you can continue to learn and continue to innovate. We also partner with different things in the leasing industry. We're very vested in how the leasing and asset finance industry works. So we partner with the leasing industry to kind of develop those training courses as well. So that's really what in the Odessa University encapsulates. That's really cool. So continuous learning is like a big part of your culture. Uh, it is. And, and, you know, again, it's one of those things where you look at it and feel we should even, we, every time you look at it, you feel we should do even more because just the, just the benefit, business, morale, everything is, is, is tremendous. That's awesome. So uh, do you have any like full-time instructors on staff or is it like um, some of your, Oh, cool. No, we, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. We have full-time, we have a full-time training team instructors with everything from database technologies to, you know, Microsoft technologies to accounting and leasing. Uh, all of that is all, uh, all part of our full-time staff. That's awesome. And so is that also um, tied in with, like advancement at the company, like if you are interested in taking on this new role, you can take this class, and upon completion, you're you're now eligible to move up in this way. Is that a part yeah? Of it? We're, we're not we're not as prescriptive about that in terms of you know this is a benchmark, this is a this is a prerequisite to get you to mm-hmm. the next level or promotion cycle or whatever it is. We tend to look at it more as learning and knowledge for learning and knowledge's sake. And not necessarily tied down with, I think, professional development from the point of view of what it means for your promotions and so on. Of course, it's professional development for the for the sake of the journey. Coming back to the Odessa <laughs> principle, right? It's for the sake of the journey. So we, we keep it more open from that perspective, uh, and that's really that's really the, the the philosophy that drives it. That's awesome. So on the topic of culture, uh, one thing I've been thinking a little bit about. So recently I interviewed this guy, Mark, he's the CTO of a company called MongoDB and Mm -hmm. they're in the database space. They make, they're, they're doing cool stuff, making databases like faster and more efficient and easier to use. Um, But he was talking about how 
that their culture is very open and they communicate with a lot of their employees on their higher level organizational strategy to get mm-hmm. feedback from like the frontline employees and engineers uh, to understand if their like h- higher level organizational timelines are realistic and they'll mm-hmm. make changes to their strategy based on the feedback from their employees. So I'm, I'm yep. curious, how do you get feedback from how, or keep open communication with your employees? Yeah, um, lots of ways. I mean, we start with the basics, town halls, uh, webinars. You know, we have a, a full-time comms team that does actually a very good job in terms of communicating on a weekly basis about what's going on at the company, new wins, day in the life of kind of blogging from different people in the organization and so on. So that those are, you know, that's one kind of level of one type of information radiator, uh, information radiating that happens in the organization. Uh, the other thing that we, we use is we have a, we, we use OKRs as our, as our, you know, to define our North Star, to define our, our goal setting framework and so on. And, um, uh, so we have OKRs that obviously live at the organizational or the, or the corporate level, and then we cascade those OKRs down to individual teams. And then obviously, ultimately to employees, every single person in the organization has an OKR associated with him or her. Uh, now, all of that is available on our internal wiki. So the organizational OKRs, so for example, organizational OKRs, our CEO's OKRs, my OKRs, and then every single person's OKRs are available for everybody to see. So that's another mechanism by which we hope that we have that sense of transparency and then, of course, alignment about what we're trying to achieve as an organization. And the other thing we do is we score them at the end of each quarter, right? And they're scored not by, for example, it's not that uh, our, our CEO and I score a department. The department leads score their own department and no, no score is questioned. You put whatever score you believe is the correct score for what you've achieved. Right. And similarly, from from an from an employee perspective, you score yourself on those OKRs. So the whole idea there is also that it's all again learning and, and development for development's sake. We don't tie those to your performance reviews or things of that nature, so that you're really trying to develop and align your North Star with the organization's North Star, whatever personal missions and goals that you really have. And yet you kind of try to do that in a in a safe way. And it's not tied with you know, what I'm going to get as my raise or what I'm going to get as my next promotion cycle and so on. Uh, because once you, if you decouple those things, we found that they're much more powerful and then people will put a stretch goal in there, for example, and, and be honest about where they failed. So having that full-time comms team and also like a full-time training team, sounds like mm-hmm. you guys do a lot of investment in the culture at the company, which sounds awesome for working there. But I'm curious, do you have uh, any KPIs that you use to measure the return on this investment in the culture at the company? Um, I think from a KPI perspective, one of the things that we do do, for example, if you are if you join the organization out of college, right? And you know, maybe you're familiar with some of the, the more theoretical aspects of, of computer science and engineering, but you haven't worked out there in the real world, right? So we go through, you go through our sort of boot camp, our orientation boot camp that is associated with learning our, our, our tools and our technologies and our domain. And then we onboard these people onto actual programs, 
once that is finished, right? Once that process is finished. So what we then do is we measure just a, you know, it could be a simple dipstick test to make sure how are these, you know, in, in, in say 15 days after you've joined a, a, a program, and let's assume, Adam, you went through that, uh, you came out of college, you went through that boot camp. It's about a 50-day boot camp. You come out of that 50-day boot camp, you start, you start writing code, right? 15 days in, we check in with, with your team lead to see how you're doing. And then we do another check in 45 days. And then we memorialize all of that formally in 90. And that gives us a sense of, well, have we hired the right person? Is our training right sized? Because sometimes our team leads will come back and say, you know, whatever we teach in those, in those boot camps is not, is not necessarily exactly what we do right now. So we go back and iterate with our training teams or it may inform how we hire somebody, what expectations we set with someone when we hire right at college, for example. And then also, if we feel that people have onboarded well, so we have a scorecard about how each person has onboarded. It's a pretty simple scorecard. And that's where we know, okay, if we get 70 or 80% of the people are, have onboarded well and their managers feel they're doing fine and they're contributing to the team, then we know that everything that comes before it is working. So that's sort of how we measure, measure the success over there. Man, that's awesome. So from thinking about like when iterating on the tech or iterating on the training or keeping a finger on your pulse of on the pulse of the leasing industry. Um, it sounds yeah. like you wear a lot of hats in terms of what you have to think about on a daily basis, I guess. So if you had like a pie chart of how you divide mm -hmm. up your time um, yep. day to day, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, everything that I just described, I should say that we have teams and people who do that. I'm just, it's, it, it doesn't yeah. all fall on me. But I mean, it sounds like you're thinking about all of it a lot, you know, and, and yeah, I think that's involved. very important, right? I, yeah, I think you're, you're, you know, what I've what I've learned, or I think what we've learned as a company through the years is, you know, most structures work when you scale. If you have something that works for 100 units of a thing, let's assume it works for 100 people, you can use that same structure to kind of scale it to 200. But when you start getting to 3x and 4x, that same structure won't work. So you have to kind of try something new. But coming back to your question, uh, I think I spend around, you know, about 25% of my time on, on just technology operations, just making sure that our product roadmap, we're executing current, uh, correctly on it, governing it, making sure that we're delivering as we say. So we're hitting our GA timelines and so on and so forth. So that's technology operations. I think 20, 25% is about is product strategy, which is you know, just thinking about where we should go directionally from from an organizational perspective. Uh, 25% is just, you know, part of my hat is also a founder hat. So just running the company, customer relationships, prospecting and so on. And then the last 25% is run the team and the hiring and just kind of obsessing about whether we have the right people in the right places, whether we have the right org design uh, that can continually scale. That's awesome. Thanks for uh, breaking that down for me. So um, what are you learning right now uh, at your company? What, what's something that's challenging you? I think the biggest challenge that we have really is one of scale, um, right? That's the, so it's a good problem. I always, sometimes it can get exhausting. So I always remind myself and, and our teams that it's a good problem, right? You rather you're trying to scale than, than not. But I think, I think that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest challenge. So first of all, you know, can we hire the right people? Can we hire fast enough? <laughs> that's one. That's one problem. Again, a good problem, but it's it's a problem nonetheless. So that's definitely one thing that we're trying to solve for. And the other is kind of understanding the mechanics of how 
a team works and understanding in the guts of in the guts of a scrum team for example what makes a scrum team tick what makes a scrum team viable right i think that's a very important part of at least from my perspective what what i'm always trying to think about um having the right roles having the right team culture i, I mean if, if you come back to what i was referring to earlier you can kind of always fix engineering but it's really hard to fix engineering culture so that's that's very important that that you get you get that right um and then i think the other the other problems that we're that we that we're that we're working on are just developing so from my viewpoint the product strategy piece is really important but i think what's more important is making sure that we have clear measures of success right around around what it means to launch something for example how will we define whether this product is successful and often less we have very very smart people who will define what the product strategy needs to be and oftentimes my job is to just help them think about that and get out of their way but i think what's important is to define is to sit down and say okay, well then how will we measure whether this is successful when will we understand that we've actually done this well so thinking about adoption thinking about the metrics and the kpis that define success is i think a very important part of what we're doing and what we're always trying to solve for and i say solve for because i think that's where you can then not get rooted in business strategy and make mistakes so defining that in a scalable reliable way is uh, is also is also a very important part of what we do so you mentioned that um just being able to hire fast enough is is a challenge for you which is awesome challenge to have so where are you guys are do you hire globally and what kind of people are you looking for we do hire globally so we have satellite office in europe and in 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 a small function in 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 latin america uh but um you know the us is a headquarters and actually um, the vast from a just numbers perspective the vast majority of our staff are in india so yes first and foremost we are looking to hire globally and um, this really runs the full gamut it's people from everything from a program management and program ownership perspective product managers analysts and then of course engineers everyone from the people that may be coming out of college all the way to engineering leads and managers as well so it's really across the board we have uh, we we have interest in in hiring in in all those in all those areas man early in the interview when you said something like um this is like the the secret industry that that nobody knows about that's so huge i mean I, I didn't quite realize the scale that you're working at, um, but I think I just looked up on on your LinkedIn. It says you have like over a thousand employees. So that's, that's right. Yeah. really crazy. Just yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is, and and you know, we would easily if you if you said we have two hundred more that could start tomorrow, we we take more. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All yeah. right. Yeah, you heard the man. Apply. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so I got I got one last question for you. Um, sure. What's been like the most impactful career advice that you've received from from like a mentor during during your time? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how impactful. Well, it was actually quite impactful. I'll, I'll tell you uh, one thing. My 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 dad actually told me when when you know. So so I was actually working at. At, at, a, at, a, at a big four consulting firm for about a few minutes before I actually joined <laughs> Odessa. 
and when I was about to leave uh, and and join uh, join Odessa and and really start, uh, I, I had noticed that that my dad hadn't really said anything. You know, he wasn't like, "Hey, you should do, you should absolutely do it," or "Hey, that's a crazy thing to do." You know, and so I finally called him and I said, "You know, Dad, I'm I'm, I'm going to do this pretty crazy thing. You know, do you have any advice for me?" And he said, "Yeah." He thought about it for a few minutes and then he said, "You know." You, you're gonna start a company. You probably really struggle with money, and 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 just making sure that you can make ends meet. He said, anytime you think about, anytime you worry about not making ends meet, don't think about cutting costs. Think about growing revenue. Uh, <laughs> which was simple, but I think it it, it struck me during those dark times where we thought we didn't have enough cash and we run out. It was it was a good way to think. I think it kept us pushing forward and. And and there were many times in my time at Odessa where I where I where I thought about that. So it was probably good advice. Yeah, I, I mean, dude, I think that that sounds super powerful. I mean, whenever you're in a scenario where you're just thinking about cutting costs, you're not doing right. anything for the business. Like that's right. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on today that we want to make sure we we say before we wrap up? No, just. Uh, you know, I, I think there's there's just so much exciting happening in in just all areas of, of technology today. I mean, I certainly don't need to tell you that. And just that we are very excited about what we're doing. We're helping some of the the largest um, institutions in the world kind of enable their digital transformation journey. And um, so so it's an, it's a, it's it's exciting. I mean, I'm, we've been at this for a long time. I've been at this for 23 years, but scarcely been more excited about what's what's going to come. So. Uh, so I think maybe if nothing else, that's what I wanted to, to put out there. That's awesome, man. Yeah, the future is bright and full of innovation. That is right. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.